Fantasy Focus Baseball Podcast today. That's all I got. <laughs> That's good enough. All right. right? It'll suffice. Got a lot it only vaguely field. resembled a song, by the way. I, it resembled the song Center Field, I believe, which is, which is played in the movie we're discussing today. Anyway, let's open it right. This is Fantasy Focus Baseball for Thursday, May 28th. 2020. That is Tristan H. Cockroft, singer of songs, winner of Myriad Fantasy Leagues. Kyle Soppy produces and researches for our show. And I'm Eric Carabell. Somebody had a host on today's show. Much fun and games and more singing and something Tristan doesn't get to sing. Uh, anyway, last night Tristan and I participated in a retro draft. We'll discuss that later on. We'll discuss the owners and the players. They really get along well. But first, we bring in our good friend, and not just for Thursdays. I like to think he's our friend for every day of the week. It's June Lee. Today, we're going to talk about Bull Durham. Uh, June, welcome to the show again. Eric and Tristan, you guys are my friends for life. So I would hope so, because I think we've built something strong here. We've um, got a good foundation. A great foundation, a good baseline for success. There's no acrimony here. We love talking about baseball and movies, and we're going to do that now with the awesome flick Bull Durham. And as always, I will ask you off the top, June, when did you see it? You know, did you see it like last week? Did you see it 10 years, 20 years ago? Um, Literally and- finished it 10 minutes ago. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I, I don't want to say it's a problem, but. For the first time, I finished it 10 minutes ago. Uh, okay, you're like so like basically, you're the kind of person. The meeting. Oh, geez. Exactly. You're the college student who's like, I got an exam at 7 a.m. I'm going to start studying at 3 a.m. Is that you? Is that what you did in college? Uh, that was like me freshman year of college, but I got a lot better at that. It's just like with these movies, it's like I I wake up early anyways. We're recording at like 1040-ish every single day. I've got time to, to crank out an hour and a half in the morning. All right, so it's obviously fresh in your mind, Bull Durham is. And uh, I think it's a fantastic movie, one of the best baseball movies ever made. Um, Crash Davis, Annie Savoy, uh, Nuke Lelouch, the top three characters. What are your overall impressions? I was, I loved this movie. I thought it was so funny and uh, it really, really held up well. And I thought the, the thing that really stuck out to me uh, f- about this movie was how specific the details were about minor league life, the the, the vernacular that they use in the movie, uh, the clubhouse dynamic, just the general like atmosphere, how players deal with each other. All of that stuff felt very true to life in a way that I don't think is is the case with most baseball movies. And so just by that alone made me really appreciate the movie. And I was looking up on Wikipedia as I was watching. Um, and it, it turns out the, the writer of the movie was and the director of the movie was a former minor league baseball player, which explained a lot. It made a lot of a lot of sense. For me, this movie is a Susan Sarandon movie. I think this movie is nothing without just her incredible performance because I think it's a really hard part to make not corny. Um, uh, and I, she's she kind of anchors everything, and, and she's kind of she's kind of the person who both Nuke Lelouch Lelouch and in uh, Kevin Costner Kevin Kevin Costner's character, they come to her, and she's kind of this like interesting fulcrum point where she kind of. You know, you, you see kind of the growth and the development of the characters through their interactions with her. Um, and it was just interesting just to generally get a sense of baseball culture, like the day-to-day baseball culture in a way that I don't think is portrayed in most pop culture. And so it was a lot of the mundane stuff that I really, really appreciated about this movie. Uh, and also, honestly, it's just, it's just a really fun, uh, funny, well-written baseball movie. It's really hard. I think it's very, very hard to complain about it. And it's, it's really, really held up well, considering uh, you know it was released in 1988. Kristen, it's it's a very complete movie, 
And the more that I watch this one, and I think now I've seen it about five or six times, I probably feel as strongly about this one in the rewatches uh, of any baseball movie I've ever seen. It holds up. And not only that, I think I have a greater appreciation each time. Whereas a lot of these others, I might, we discussed the Sandlot last week, I like less each time I watch it. This is one that I could continue to return to. And I probably underappreciated it the first time that I saw it. I did not see it when it first was originally released. I think it was early 90s when I had first seen it. Um, And I'm not, I'll tell you this, it struck me as a rom-com more than anything and a little bit less of the baseball. And I think I came to appreciate the fact that those two are merged together in a very effective way. It does a good job, as June said, of giving storytelling here. It kind of brings that together. Um, I, I I've gotten used to it over the years. I have. I, I, I guess it bothered me initially, and now I probably should put it number one. I didn't, and it was a mistake on my part. It's certainly entertaining and emotive to me, and, and it, it, nice lessons as well, as, as you mentioned earlier, June. As a baseball movie, I feel it is believable. Crash Davis, as a longtime minor leaguer, left-handed hitting catcher with power, they're not in great demand in the major leagues. He did have a small cup of coffee in the majors, but – there's just one plot point that I don't find realistic. It's the end of the movie when the kid gets called up straight from the Carolina League right to the major leagues. Yeah. Yes, yes, that's a little bit Spot of a problem. On. That was by, that was the only far fetched part of the movie. I thought. I well, yeah. That, they, they also they do a pretty good job of of turning around a guy who's a complete mess to being a bona fide major leaguer in one year. That that's a little bit of a stretch too. I can accept that more than as you're describing jumping from that level of the majors. Yeah, but you, you get the feeling watching Nuke pitch uh, in the minors that there's something there, that he could be, be a monster pitcher right now, even if he's going into someone's bullpen in the major leagues, as long as he throws strikes. It's just it's funny, like when Crash says, throw the ball at the mascot. I mean, that's that's fantastic stuff. Yeah. Uh, I just – the movie And that happened. You remember that happened with A.J. Burnett in Miami where he hit right. the mascot. <laughs> I, I think the movie stands the test of time. Um Anything else, like, in terms of quotes? I mean, there's a lot of quotable things in the movies, um, you know, in this movie. Like, for example, the candlesticks, like, on the mound. Maybe, Tristan, you'd like candlesticks for your birthday. Oh, wait. Is today – is tomorrow your birthday, Tristan? Are we going to have to discuss that at some lies. point today? Filthy oh, happy lies. birthday. Filthy yeah, it's tomorrow's lies. your birthday, so I feel like we oh, should all get man. together while four of us are here, maybe sing it. Kyle's going to lead us in song. So uh, Tristan turns 29 years old tomorrow for like the 20th straight year. So <laughs> I, I I wonder if singing would ruin – like when he sings, it's good. June, do you think you could sing? Do you think you'd be a good singer for this show or no? Uh, I did some chorus in like middle school. Like I can, I, I can, I can hold a tone. I can hold that, a note. That holds up. Okay. <laughs> Happy birthday. No, I can't do it. <laughs> ruin the show anyway tristan turns 29 tomorrow um tristan you have a trivia question this will be like halftime of our movie discussion oh uh, yes trivia trivia that none of you will know actually you probably will know this i wanted to go with uh with themed so this is i guess more for the listeners than you guys because you probably know the answers uh i would like you to name the real life minor league career home run leader I think you're completely overestimating my trivia skills. It's been done certainly during our lifetimes, but relatively recently. So if you recall the news story, you'd remember this guy being the, the record, record breaker, and they compared him to Crash Davis. So. <laughs> I remember the story, but I don't remember who it was. Yeah. 
we'll get back to the answer. You can think I have about a trivia it. question for you, Tristan. So I'm watching last Friday was a glorious day on MLB Network. They showed the Phillies, uh, the four wins in the Phillies World Series in 1980. And I just sat in my hammock all day and watched all four games. And I loved every minute of it. And uh, I even DVR'd. And then Schoenfield texted me and said, are you watching this? I'm like, oh, am I wa- I'm watching and DVRing it and pointing it out to my children. Um, and then I'm on baseball reference all day, as I want to do. And so, Tristan, in the 80, in the 80 playoff series between the Phillies and the Astros, which is the best uh, playoff series ever, um, th- those two teams had three Cy Young winners, the Astros and the Phillies. Guess them. They didn't necessarily pitch in that playoff series, but they pitched for the 80 Phillies, the 80 Astros, three combined Cy Young winners. Three from both teams combined? From both teams combined. A little bit of a trick question here, but. Uh, Carlton. Steve Carlton. Yes. Who are the other two? J.R. Richard. Oh, we'll get to your answer a little bit later. Um, back to the movie now. Favorite part of the movie, June, because it opens kind of cool. Like, like Nuke doesn't know that Crash is going to be his catcher, and you don't really know what Annie's role is going to be in the movie, and then you find out, and Crash is like, well, I don't want any part of this. I'm a man. I'm mature. And I like that, how that evolves. I like how the relationships evolve. And then, like, I like how it's like uh, – I, I don't want to be involved because, like, I, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, superstitious. I'm superstitious, so now I'm wearing women's underwear. It's like I love the evolution of the flick. I'm not even sure what my favorite part is. So what's your favorite part? Oh, one of, one of my favorite parts of the movie, and, and this is kind of building off of what you said, is the contrast that the movie draws between – uh, nuke and crash, I think is very interesting. And one of the most interesting, like one of one of the small details that I noticed was, you know, nuke at one point comments on, uh, Susan Sarandon's character's music that she's playing. Um, Annie, and, um, he doesn't know how to dance. Doesn't, you know, it, it, it was very funny to see Kevin Costner at the beginning of the movie be like, I don't want to dance. It's not a thing I want to do. And by the end, he's just like goofing off with her. And I thought that, that, I think that was very symbolic of just kind of the character arc that, uh, that crash kind of takes during the movie. Um, for me, I think my favorite part, I didn't realize how quotable this movie was. Oh, yeah. Strikeouts are fascist is one of the funniest quotes in, in a baseball movie. That is a fantastic quote. And um, obviously the scene when they're all on the mound and like, we're dealing with a lot of stuff here, you know, right. and then- the mound visit was hilarious too. I think the, the mascot bit was also hilarious just because it's like, is it, I loved how it captured like all these small mundane moments of the baseball season that like don't really move the plot forward, but are just like light, funny moments to like keep moving. I mean, you know, to fit into the rom-com structure, obviously. Yeah. By the way, uh, Annie had one of my favorite underrated movie lines, even just putting aside the whole baseball thing. Baby ducks are cute. I hate cute. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Um, and I genuinely believe in that. I hate the word cute. <laughs> I mean, it's it's uh, it's a simple game. You throw the ball, you catch the ball, you hit the ball. The shower scene when the manager gets angry and and Crash is kind of like a de facto player manager, saying, "Well, just scare the kids." You know, that's that's like you you could believe that a lot of this stuff happens in the minor league. We have a rain delay out of nowhere. Um, you can believe that this stuff happens. And if you've ever been, I, I think was that filmed at Dur- in Durham because I've been to that stadium in Durham, and it's just it's minor league baseball is cool. I think it's really fun, and and when when the when Nuke is talking to the reporter and he's being, he's being taught what to say to the reporter and what not to say, I'm like, I remember those days 
when I was covering minor league baseball. That was like one of my first assignments when I was breaking into the business was covering minor league baseball for like the Prince William Cannons and the Frederick Keys down in Washington, D.C. area. It's like, this is minor league baseball. It's great. I, I, th- I thought it was. I th- I, this is probably funny for me as a baseball writer, uh, but like hearing uh, Crash basically teach Nuke all of the cliches that you need to tell the reporters, I thought that was hysterical because I've heard literally every single one of those every single day during the course of a baseball season after a game. Um, so for me, the thing that makes this movie special is is the small details that really kind of bring this like experience to life. It's it doesn't feel like a generic baseball movie there's so many small particulars in the details of how this movie is written that makes it feel so specific which i think makes it feel super authentic yeah like like when when uh the crash is giving the hitter the just telling him that a fastball is coming you have to believe that stuff like that happens in the minor leagues and and then he's like well don't show up my pitcher there's like things in there that are i just I yeah. love this movie, right? I mean, it's yeah. a lot to love. The conversations between catcher and hitter are also natural here. You see a little bit of that in Major League, which we previously discussed, but they felt a little bit more realistic in this case. <laughs> yeah, I, I now that I think about it too, like a rom-com is almost a por- perfect format for baseball because baseball takes itself too seriously, right? So like just bringing laughs in general is always a good thing. Um, but also there is a romanticism about baseball, right? Like the speech that Susan Sor- uh, Annie gives at the beginning of the movie I think it's very emblematic of of the way a lot of people feel about baseball. You know, the, this over this very romantic feeling of nostalgia, um, you know, connecting philosophy and love and all that stuff. Like it felt very, uh, it felt like a it felt like a movie that like obviously a lot of people could watch, but it also felt like a movie that was made for people who love baseball. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, the director Ron Shelton played minor league baseball. I, I I also like as a I I like reading the trivia part of IMDb, and I remember reading that. A lot of the extras in the movie, it was filmed in, you know, Durham Chapel, Durham Chapel Hill. Um, went, I had gone to a Pink Floyd concert like the night before, and they were wearing their Dark Side of the Moon t-shirts when they did it. And I went to a Pink Floyd concert, I think, like the same year. And I still remember it. Oh, man, I wish I could go back to those days. Well, the, well, well concerts ever happen again? Um, just and so much. I, I don't know. We could go on and on about it. Tristan, any final thoughts on Bull Durham? I mean, from the the historical perspective, yeah, it's uh, I, it holds up. A, yeah, a ridiculous left field thing for me was I the ball that that gets hit by the home run in the game where you win a stake, which is where I got my little name in the squad cast from, is uh, was added for the movie. I, I actually thought that had been an original to the stadium. It was added for the movie, and they yeah, that's it. not there. But it might might have gone there after. <laughs> no, they created uh, it for the movie, and they have kept it since. Yeah, they kept it around. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, next week, I believe, is Field of Dreams, which is fantastic. So, June, I'll just ask you off the top: Have you seen that movie? You're going to watch it next Sunday. I have Thursday seen Field morning. of Dreams. Yes. Okay. So that's not going to be cramming. Two of the three Kevin Costner baseball movies, correct? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't want to do the third. What's the, well, the third one is the one where he's a pitcher for the Tigers and throws a perfect game. The third wasn't. It wasn't as bad as I seemed to fear when I watched it, but you know, it's not like Trouble with the Curve. It's not that bad. It, it's it's not a bad movie. That other one, what's it called? Um, you know the what I'm talking about? The Love of the Game. Yeah, no, because Vince Scully's in it. I don't think that's a bad movie. Field of Dreams is not a bad movie, although there's something I just can't get over. Yeah, we'll get that that Field of Dreams takes for next week. We'll get there. We'll, we'll save that for next week. There's also something I can't get over. While we have you, June, um, let's talk about what's happening in real baseball right now because it's a little bit disconcerting. And I don't want to overrate it, and I certainly don't want to tweet about it, but I want to take it seriously. 
it seems like there's so much acrimony between the players, the players union and the owners when it comes to how to divide the money. And I can see both sides of this. Okay. And I, all I want and all that I think most of the listeners to the show want is baseball in 2020 and beyond. I don't think they really care how it happens, whether anyone's there, who makes what, but after the Max Scherzer tweet from last night, things aren't looking so good. So I want to ask you as a baseball writer, do you think this is all legit? Do you think this is posturing? What's going on? So it's probably a little bit of everything, right? Um, I thought the fact that Scherzer tweeted that out was extremely significant, mostly because, you know, he's one of the, the, the highest ranking players in the, in the, in the, in the union. Uh, and he's Max Scherzer. He's, he's one of the most, you know, famous players in baseball. And so the fact that he was taking this very public stance about how they basically weren't going to acknowledge the fact that MLB wanted to reduce their pay rates in their counter proposal, I think just generally speaks to the state of the relationship between the league and the union. You just, there's, there's been a lot of chatter over the course of the last couple of years about this upcoming uh, CBA negotiation in, tw- in 2021. Uh, and I think there's been a lot of nervous people around the game, you know, people who think that they're, they're, they're before this pandemic happened, that there was going, there was, that there was a, a decent chance of, uh, of a player strike potentially happening or, or games just not happening. And I think this pandemic, like a lot of problems in America has, uh, accelerated, uh, and brought to the forefront, like all of the issues that are happening. When you talk to players and when you talk to front office people, um, just, the general trend that I've gone from talking to a lot of folks in the game is that there just isn't trust on both sides. I think both sides view the other side extremely cynically. And so they're going to, you know, take all of these, uh, negotiation taxes in the, in the most cynical way possible. And so I think it's just, it's creating more, more, uh, acrimony on social media. And it's just, it's, it's, it's really, really unhealthy for the sport just because, you know, the players lost a lot in the last CBA negotiation. I think that. They're in a place where they want to make ground back up. And we have to see kind of what happens because the owners are taking a very hard stance here and trying to cut player salaries. Um, it's, I don't know, it's, it's, it's a really, really complicated situation. And I personally, for me, my big, biggest concern is just what happens if we just don't have a season of baseball? What does that mean for the future of the sport? You know, we're already in a place where Mike Trout, you know, potentially one of the five greatest players of all time is only known by 43% of Americans, according to the New York Times. Like that is a major problem for baseball in terms of its notoriety. And as a 25 year old baseball fan, there is not a lot of us. There is not a lot of people who are in their twenties who are extremely passionate about baseball in the same way that people are passionate about basketball and football. And so the thing that really worries me is that, and this might be the most anxious part of me coming out, but like, you know, you have an entire summer where there's no baseball. Who are these kids going to, you know, who potentially have any interest in baseball, why would they gravitate towards baseball when they're, when the owners and the players are squabbling over millions and millions of dollars? That's the thing that really, really worries me. And I think that is getting lost in just the public posturing that's coming from both sides is that at the end of the day, you know, none of this matters if nobody cares about baseball in 20 years. And so my hope in all of this is that obviously things are done safely and, and people, uh, don't get sick. Uh, in the whole baseball community and that they're able to logistically handle this well, which I think there's a lot of concerns from the players just about the whole safety aspect of this. But I also think it's about the future of the sport and young fans and, and not making this all about money because at the end of the day, you know, we're talking about Bull Durham, right? It's this incredibly romantic story about um, how baseball can, you know, uh, it's a very romantic story about, about how people think about baseball. And I think that, 
when we're in this kind of situation, it's so easy to get lost in just the, the dollar amounts. Um, and so just the whole, the whole thing is just generally concerning to me, honestly. I, you know, you can make a case because of the pandemic, Tristan, that they could take the year off and it wouldn't be, it wouldn't destroy the brand. Um, they recovered from a strike before, um, the, obviously the CBA was up at the end of next season anyway, and I want them to play safely. I'm not sure they can do that this summer, even if they do agree to all the financial reasoning here. But social media ain't helping. That's for yeah. sure. No and, question. You know, I mean, obviously, we just want baseball. Now, I wrote a piece yesterday about what baseball would look like this season. And we'll talk about that on Monday's show with Brad Doolittle. Um, so I don't, we don't need to get to that now. But I just want baseball. And I'm starting to think that we might not have it this season, which is a little – I think people will come back to it eventually. But – I think everybody just has to get over themselves at some point. I, I cannot detach myself from the fact that the CBA expires next year. It is exactly 18 months from Monday that that expires. And I can't think that these two aren't linked, that this yeah, is why. Be, yeah. and, and that is a huge problem considering the timetable. And if we have the loss of baseball this year based on what's going on in the world tied to that, it's like we're flashing back to 25 years ago and this could do more damage. So that scares me a lot. And I hope they get this done. And as you said, Eric, perfectly said about social media, it's not helping things. I can't stand seeing the finger pointing. There are mistakes all around here. Well, I think something that I think something that in in particular with baseball is that these negotiations are happening through the media and on social media. And you're not seeing that with the NBA. Obviously, baseball is in a different situation because the NBA played the majority of their season. And so there's a different there's a lot more problems to work through in, in regards to the salary. But at the end of the day, like this is happening in the media and they're not talking. They're talking to each other through they're negotiating through the media. And that is not a healthy way to to, to figure out these incredibly complicated financial and logistical safety issues. It, it's important to trust your employers. And uh, that's not happening, obviously. And by the way, more baseball discussion about this topic. This is a fantasy show, but I'm sure Buster Olney is talking about it. He's been talking to play-by-play announcers for Unique Perspective and position coaches to get the inside stories that no one has heard. Make sure to check out the Daily Baseball Tonight shows on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. June, thank you so much for joining us on today's show to talk about Bull Durham. Next week, it is Field of Dreams. And uh, please, whatever you do, do not get a haircut because I love the fact <laughs> that your hair, you know, I, I'm going to start like putting mine in a bun soon, but yours looks good. It's just going straight yeah. up. And, yeah. and cause It's kind of curly. I thought I was going to get taller, um, but I'm, I'm starting to get to a place where I might be able to pull off a man bun. So we'll see if that happens. But you're like, you're like, I'm sure you haven't seen this movie, but you're like the guy in Fletch who's six foot tall, but six foot six with the Afro. That's what you look like right now. We're seeing each other on the Squadcast. Oh uh, you haven't seen Fletch either. That's a great movie. Not really I've never seen that movie. movie. I honestly, I, I have never heard of the movie that you just referenced. So. It sounds like you're a little bit like Kyle. You don't see a lot of movies unless you're forced to because of this show. That's basically uh, what's happening here. Yeah, we'll have to put that one in rotation. In all fairness, I've heard of Fletch because my brother looked like him in high school. <laughs> Your brother looked like Fletch. No, of course. <laughs> but you still oh, haven't seen it. No. While we still have June, we should do the trivia answers. Oh, we got to answer the trivia questions. I'm sure June knows the answer. I- <laughs> I'm sure he does. I, I don't know. I'm really disappointed that neither of you, that none of the three of you seem to know the career minor league home run leader. I, I yeah. actually, I know it's a right-handed hitting first baseman. Yes, he played, very good. played for the Braves. Yep. I remember when he came up. Yep. I just can't remember his name. 
And if even you could give me a hint, and I like, I still don't know if I. There's so many minor league slugging first basemen that just need a chance. Like Christian Walker got his chance last season, and look what he did with it. And this guy, he basically, if you're a first baseman who has no defensive ability anywhere else, you have slugging power. You're not a big walker. You're going to be stuck in the minors for a long time. All right, June, do you have an answer here? I have no clue. If you add man to the last name of a, of a current Orioles right-handed relief pitcher. Mike Hessman. Very good job. <laughs> Mike Hessman is correct. 433. Tip of my tongue. I remember the story. I remember him coming up playing with the Braves. I don't think he did much in the majors, so he wasn't really Christian Walker. Do you have an answer to my trivia question? Three so I, Cy Young winners. I know. I think I know the tough one. John Denny. No, he wasn't on that team. John Denny was on the 83 oh. team. Oh, wow. Oh, I thought he was on there beforehand. It's I, a trick question. It's a trick question? Yeah, because none of them were Astros. <laughs> so, right. That's what I was afraid of. I, I, I thought for sure you were going to say. Got, Nolan Ryan got blocked out of the Cy Young in 87 that he should have won. Um, should have won in 87. J.R. Richard never got a chance to do it. So three Phillies on the 1980 team won the Cy Young Award. Only one of them pitched oh, in the playoffs. Steve Carlton. Hernandez. Willie Hernandez was not on that team either. He wasn't on the team for a couple more years. Jeez, I can't remember when these Phillies got to the Nobody's team. gonna get this. I I I love this and anyway, to get to move it along, Sparky Lyle pitched for the set for the nineteen eighty Phillies. He won an undeserved Cy Young Award in nineteen seventy seven. And Mark Davis, who who saved forty four oh. games in like eighty nine or something, yeah. he was on the he started the last game of the season for the eighty Phillies. Mark Davis. Really? First of all, relief pitchers should not be winning these Cy Youngs. Dennis Eckers, the year he won his Cy Young, was like 20th in the league in, in, among pitchers and wins above replacement. He really shouldn't have won it. Anyway, that's for another show. Um, There's nothing that makes me feel more useless as a baseball writer than never getting these trivia answers, <laughs> never having a clue. Well, you're so young. All this happened uh... before you were born, and we're so old. Tristan's not really 29 years old. I mean, I don't want to give away, I but like – He doesn't look a day over 28. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> With my hair, though, it's not so good. Uh, uh, June, thank you so much for joining us. Now on with your day, and uh, please watch these movies. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Bye, guys. Thanks, June. All right. So June Lee does a great job, and we really love having him on the show. And whether he's watching the movies an hour before our show or he's watching them ten years ago it doesn't really matter. I just like talking about good baseball movies and. Field of Dreams is good. We'll get to that next week. And um, trivia is fun. Uh, what else do we need to talk about on today's show? I don't want to talk about what's really happening in baseball because it's just making me mad. But on Monday's show, Kyle email. Good Lord, Kyle. Oh, my God. Kyle just sent us an email about what his bro- – that's your brother's real hair. Yeah, didn't go with- he went through all the high school without getting his hair cut. That cannot be his real hair. I promise you, I will. T- I'll tag him in the tweet. Where he can. Uh, he keeps it real short these days. But that is a uh, that's a soppy claim to fame back in high school. Uh, all right, Tristan. Let's move along and talk about your last entry in the playbook. Uh, it was last week the advanced stats portion, um, and this is this one hits home for me, and I'll tell you why. Because I often find it hard to find the advanced stats that everybody's talking about. I mean, it took me a little while to figure it out. And I, people tweet me and say, where do you find exit velocity numbers? Where do you find launch angle on hard hit rate and barrels? And briefly, could you tell us why is all this important? It doesn't always tell us who's going to break out. Like we, we didn't know Jorge Soler was going to do what he did based on what he did the last season. 
But early on in 2019, you could see Solaire was doing something special and it was going to stick. Is that what I can imagine what you think from all this? Yeah, it, it gives us a better picture statistically of what a player's true skills are, which is something we didn't have when the rotisserie game was invented. And frankly, even around the turn of the century, you couldn't get stats like this. They were proprietary numbers that major league teams had. Uh, the site to get most familiar with uh, when it comes to StatCast is Baseball Savant, which is where you can get leaderboards. You can create custom leaderboards where you can add the stat categories you care about uh, under the statistics tab. The other is you can search, which means you can do breakdowns based on date ranges, different split types, uh, handedness, types of batted balls. There's a lot of different things you can do. So when we talk, Eric, you and I, about let's investigate this part of a player's game, that's probably the first place that I'm going to go is somewhere there to get things like the exit velocity, the launch angle, what his hard hit rate was, things like that, uh, what the batted ball distribution was, because those are using cameras to measure them instead of somebody sitting there and going, hey, that's a line drive. I'm tracking it as that. I assume, and this wasn't really made specific in the story, that you use this information to decide whether a player's season was legit or not. He hit the ball hard so he can do it again. If he didn't hit the ball hard, and I don't have an example off the top of my head, but if a player had like a 35 home run season, but he did it by barely, like a Yuli Gurriel. He barely hit a lot of these home runs over the fence. We can see that from these uh, from these other sites. I assume you use it to decide who is legit and who is not. I do, yes. And as a matter of fact, the final edition of the playbook, which should come out later today, will discuss specific player examples. And that's going to show the ways in which you can use this. Um, but yeah, if so, for example... Tim Anderson comes to mind immediately for me. And this is the one that, that kind of struck me yesterday was you can get the expected batting average for a player. So we talk so often about BABIP and what it talks, uh, what, what it does to the player's uh, batting average. StatCast will gauge the types of batted balls, the quality of the contact that somebody like Tim Anderson, Anderson produced and give you the batting average he should have been expected to hit. And I was surprised it was as high as it was. This is a guy who in 2018, they said, should have batted 227. They said last year he should have batted 294, which means I'm being unfair in saying that he should completely regress in this category and not even be productive. He was decent. He just wasn't anywhere near the number that he gave you at the end of the year. So it gives you an idea of just how much, to what degree you should regress these players to the mean. I, I don't, and I'll be careful how I say this, I don't see how this information is bad. There are so many people in baseball, and a lot of them are on television too, and a lot of them are in the baseball dugouts, who say, I don't want analytics. I don't want help in deciding who I think is good and who I don't think is good. We can all look at on-base percentage, and we can look at the 70s and 80s and see these little shortstops batting second that didn't deserve it. Like Mark Belander's batting second for Baltimore in the World Series. How does that happen? Is That wasn't getting on base. But – Hard hit percentage and barrels and exit velocity. This is important stuff. What's the case to be made now for somebody saying, I don't want any analytics? I don't see what the case is anymore. I, I, you're an old player. You've been retired 10 years. You're like, no, I can see with my eyes. No, you can't. You can't see with your eyes that, that Nicholas Castellanos consistently barrels up baseball and hits them hard. It, he's not hitting home runs, but you can see something in his numbers that say that's all legit. So – the, the part of the complaint about analytics that I understand is if you want to create a stat, you want to invent a formula and come up with something that you've decided is the best way to measure players, 
I understand the criticisms for this. Criticism for this. I wanted to a while ago come up with a universal formula to grade each pitcher's uh, performance on a, a per game basis. Reliever, starter, whatever. It would give you one number at the end of the day. I understand if a real, you know, a, a, a historical baseball player, TV and uh, broadcaster, analyst, whatever, wants to complain about something like that. I do not understand the idea of complaining about metrics like StatCast. These are true measured numbers that tell you <laughs> the authenticity of the player's talent. Exit velocity tells you how hard did he hit the ball. That's hit tool. Come on. Barrels. That's talking about how much power a player has. That's a true measure of a player's power. How can we ignore these? I, I mean, now that we have stuff that's actually measured visually by cameras, I mean, I, I don't understand the idea of putting that aside. I get the idea of putting aside the, the stats that are based on formulas, things like war, where we've questioned, you and I, Eric, the, the, the measure for a player's defense in the war calculation. I get that. But these? But, I mean, how much of this is repeatable? But my, the one problem that you and I – not problem, but we, we disagree a lot on the show about is – what is repeatable and what was just a bad season? And how much should we put into what happened last year? We know what Jorge Soler did with Barrels last year. He led the league in the category, I think. Uh, and then he hit a ton of home runs. And then you wrote in the article that Max Fried allowed only 21 barrels all season. How much of what Soler and Fried did is repeatable when it comes to barrels and X velocity and all that? It still comes down to you have to either trust a three-year average you have to trust that maybe what he did two years ago was more legit than what he did last year. Um, it's it's predicting ahead. We already know what the players did. So when you're looking at all these like further analytical stats, how much of it is, all right, he did it, can he repeat it, and how much is he has to regress, like Tim Anderson? So the unfortunate truth here is that there isn't enough data in StatCast history for me to do a fair examination of repeatability. StatCast, the stats are available only from 2015 until now. It's been five seasons in the tank, and frankly, I think the past three years are the ones that are the the most accurate out of those. So it's not enough yet for us to do year-over-year regressions. When we talk about projections, I think 10 years from now, when we have 10-plus years of data in the tank, it'll be a little bit easier for us to use these to build a better projection model, but I don't think we can do that today. For me, the value is, I have a question about a player. Why did Joey Gallo hit for a better batting average? This is something that's going to come up in the final playbook. And Eric, you've asked me, why do I believe in Joey Gallo? The reason I believe in him is that I know what he did to work with his new hitting coach, Luis Ortiz, last year. And I want to know, statistically, what did that mean for him? And what I saw was that he was a heck of a lot more patient, had a much better strike zone judgment. And then I have to make the decision based on that data, not in a projections model, but just up here. Do I believe in what happened before it in the two years, or do I believe in what StatCast is, is telling me? And I'm making the decision fantasy-wise that I believe fully in last year, and I'm going to toss aside the previous two seasons. Well, that's what it comes down to. You win your leagues, and you have to project ahead. So, man, Jorge Soler is one of the most – and we keep talking about him – one of the most interesting players because he showed up so, so, so much on these leaderboards last season, but in the past he hadn't. It's almost like he finally put it together – I look. What I do want, you believe with him? I believe that if, if I had him in Philadelphia, translating out of Kansas City, be a sim hero. He'd hit like eighty home runs in my ballpark. Um, I believe the power is legitimate. I believe when he was on the Cubs that there was power there. I didn't think he was swinging at the right pitches. He he changed. 
there was something actionable that he changed that we didn't know he was going to be able to change. That's why he had such an amazing season, and he did. He had 48 home runs. So he overcame his ballpark. He overcame his past predilection to swing at everything, and he he actionably changed. He's one of the five players who've made the most changes to his batting approach to become a better player. Give him credit. So I think he's a legit. I don't. I look. We'll get to this on Monday. Nobody gets projected to hit 400 or to hit 50 home runs. Okay, everybody comes back to the pack a little bit. Jorge Soler could lead the league in home runs the next time there's a league. I could see that happening, but what's not hitting int- for average, 270 maybe. What's interesting about what Soler did, you and I discussed him, I think, in May or June of last season, was he looked like he was being more patient. At the end of the year, the numbers did not bear that out. The significant change was he was making better contact on pitches in the strike zone, which suggests to me exactly what you're saying, that he made specific adjustments that are more difficult to measure, and they resulted in some big stats. Statcast uh, tied for 10th in hard-hit baseballs last year. He was first in barrels, as you pointed out, with 70. That's just absurd. 70 barrels. I mean, why wouldn't everybody want this information? You're running a major league team. Okay, like, why would you want to be the Mets and just ignore this information? Your manager says, oh, I just don't care about it. Like, that's dumb. I, I just, I don't get it. And I, I'm not a fan of that team, so I don't care. But, like, I just, why would you ignore that? I mean, it, you, for lineups, for roster construction, for all kinds of things, for fielding. You can see who's getting the baseball. I love when they do on StatCast this center fielder, Ramon Laureano, who runs all the way, does this at, at an angle, and he sprints speed to get to the ball, and he makes an amazing catch, and then he throws it. Like That information is helpful to every major league team. Why would you want to ignore it? I don't get it, but that's not my – and then look, my team's no no good at it either, obviously. The Phillies are not a great team, so – I do think the teams, major league teams, use this a lot more than they let on. I really don't doubt that. And I know that players do. I know if that the there manager are does, then it doesn't matter. If the manager thinks that this is, you know, a bunch of it, it they're not going to pay attention to this stuff. They're going to bat their worst players at the top of the order. They're not going to, you know, we, we know for a fact that you want to put your best hitters batting second and fourth, not third. Stop batting your best player third, Mike Trout should not be batting third because too often, more than not, he will come up in the first inning with nobody on it too well. Yep. You also, you want to bat your best players higher in the order, not fifth or sixth because they're power guys, because you want them to bat more over the course of a season. That's like, what, 50 at-bats per, or 50 plate appearances per spot in the order, I think it is? Uh, it varied based, it varied based on the numbers, but when you're talking two spots, you were looking at, you know, 70, 75 or so. It's a pretty significant dif- distance, especially if you're looking at the more productive teams, the ones that come to the, uh, exactly. the play more often over the course of the year. Wade Boggs was one of the best leadoff hitters ever. He did not have sprint speed. In the 1986 draft we did last night, I looked it up. He was 0 for 4 in yeah. stealing bases. You, it doesn't, stealing bases is overrated. Uh, you know, I've never seen his sprint speed though. Yeah, it didn't matter how fast he was. It's just, it's it's all... Sprint speed, by the way, is one that I have not fully embraced yet. I love the measure, but I'm not quite sure yet what it tells me. I'm, I, I, I'd i be a little careful with that one. I haven't had enough time to it fully... It tells measure. you that a guy can run, but he can't steal bases necessarily. Right, right. So many guys... I, I'm trying to think of names now from the past of players that should have been base stealers, but they just, just couldn't figure out... Cesar Hernandez, now in Cleveland cannot figure out how to be a good base stealer. Whatever the instincts are, reading pitchers or getting the right jumps, he has the speed to steal 30 bases a season. He's just never done it, and he's never going to do it, I don't think. Jeff Stone, the old Phillies, could never figure it out either. Um, Anyway, we've wasted enough time. 
that that was fun. It's a good discussion. If we had any hash browns to ask, we would ask them. If you have any hash browns for Monday's show about a potential season, try not to get you know. Try not to. I saw somebody comment on this on Twitter last night. I thought it was the best answer. Don't pay attention on Twitter to what's happening right now in baseball with the acrimony between the union and the players uh, and the owners because it's just not going to help you. Just hope that they figure it out at some point and we get baseball if it's safe. And you know what? Even if they don't play this year, I'll be back for next year. So you can say, well, it's going to ruin it for me. It's not going to ruin it for me. I just It's the one sport that just can't figure things out. Hockey figured it out pretty easy. Basketball will follow. Football, they don't have anything to figure out right now, but at some point they will. It's just incredible to me what's happening here. But yeah. anyway. Both sides, I think, want you to listen. That's that's in their best interest, and I'm just ignoring it. I think there's you know all mistakes, and I just hope this gets gets done. You know. hey, all right. You want yeah. to um? Do you want to do any quick thoughts on the '86 draft since you brought it Not up? Not really, man. That annoyed me. I, I so we were in a retro draft from 1986 last night. We both did 1999 before that. Um, we did not fare well. What were your overall thoughts on the draft? So first of all, huge thanks to everybody that's involved in this project. Yes, Ron Chandler, Tom Ron Zola. Chandler. Todd Zolas developed this unbelievable uh, spreadsheet that calculates the standings based on each pick that we do. So draft number two, as you mentioned, we didn't do great. We both were over the 60-point threshold, which is within 20 points of winning, but still a pretty safe distance away. Weird strategies are winning these retro drafts. Punting. You you have to punt. Nobody can build a balanced team. It's impossible to build a balanced team. I think I might have figured out why this is the case compared to a regular draft. Let's hear it. You can manipulate the lineups during the regular season, and that neutralizes some of the effects of punting categories and going for things like saves, ERA, and whip. You can maximize all of your other categories. I can maximize matchups. I can avoid the course field games where when we're drafting a player, we're taking in those bad course outings that affected the ERA and whip. Uh, We're also doing ad drops. We're not doing that in this. So we're draining the player pool and the quality games deeper than in a traditional draft than we are in a retro draft. But you still, I, I was saying before the show to Kyle, I drafted Milwaukee Brewers ace Teddy Higuera in the first, in the second round. I punted whip because I drafted Higuera. His whip was worse than everybody else's in the league. Like, like the team total. I didn't realize when I drafted him, like that was it. I finished last in whip. I couldn't win. You can't win by punting your and whip. So I, I, I hope I get another shot and I'm going to try to get, it's just, the thing that bothers me is you can't build a balanced team and win because everybody's right. punting something, and that means that some and it comes down to the last pick. It, it was a, another dramatic ending. We had a, a dramatic ending in both of the ones I've been in, but I've seen three of these now. And if you're not punting something, whether it's batting average, it, it seems kind of silly to punt stolen bases. Uh, the guy who won punted wins and Caves. wins and and strikeouts two in a row now. Yeah, it's just uh, – it's fun. I loved it. I didn't love how long it took, four and a half hours, but it's it's something to do, and maybe I'll figure it out next time. As long as I beat you, I guess that's all that really matters. But that, it was – Your point about going for the balanced team, I don't think it's the winning path. I think that's the winning path currently. I think that is the traditional way to win in Roto because, again, you can manipulate the lineups, you can manipulate the ad drops, and in this you cannot do that. Right, but like – this brings to mind maybe the maybe the way to win now is punting. Like I, I'll be honest with you, I've done drafts so far this year and I've punted stolen bases and I've done so or saves. 
because those are volatile topic. First of all, if you have a, an 80 game season, the, the stolen base leader is going to have like 15 or 20. Mm-hmm. So why, like, why would you take anybody that's just stealing bases? I don't know. I probably lost it last night when I drafted Alfredo Griffin, a shortstop with no power. That's how I lost it. That was like eight points in home runs and RBI that I just gave up by drafting a 35 stolen base guy. There's no room for that in, in any league. And I, I foolishly did it. But I enjoyed it. It's fun. I can't wait to do it again. It's like, here, give me a thank you, sir. May I have another? This um, is uh, throwing the cold water on punting currently. Uh, Larry Sheets was one of the players I wanted to get late. As a matter of fact, missing out on him was one of the things that killed me in the standings. Larry Sheets batted 338 times in 1986. That means there were probably 200 additional at-bats that you wasted there by locking him into that spot that I'll tell you I would have maximized during the year. And if that was the case, so Scott Payanowski was the winner of this draft by punting. Yes, all credit to Scott. Good race. Congratulations to Scott. He did and and he saw the strategy previously in the in the second nineteen ninety nine draft, followed it and won even though it was very close. But we were all saying in the middle of that room that we could have maximized those hitting spots, beaten him in those categories, and then it wouldn't succeed in a current modern day draft. All right, well we'll see which categories we punt next. Uh I punting has become a more viable strategy for me for 2020, 2021 than I ever really believed because now I, I just you're not somebody can beat you out with a perfect team, but it's really hard to have a perfect team. You're right; you can manipulate it during a season, but when we're just drafting off of past stats, it's uh, you can't manipulate anything except you know, like. And I, I am not going to punt the array and whip. I've done it in both drafts now, and I didn't mean to do it in either one. It's weird. It's like you're drafting Bruce Hurst, who was so good that year, but his whip wasn't good enough. So it's like. Right. If you if I picked fourth in both drafts and I just there were only two great starting pitchers in each draft and I missed out in both of them, I needed one of them. The strategy I employed in both these drafts, I had to have Roger Clemens last night and I didn't get him. Teddy Aguirre is not nearly good enough in whip. Of course, another thing to keep in mind with the punt strategy is we have full control over the stats. We know the outcomes in advance, and if you do big, it today. Big. You don't. If you draft three closers and you decide that you're going to punt wins and Ks and go for saves, ERA, and whip, and then your two closers lose their job, bye! You lost. I, I should have punted saves. I, I was going to punt saves again, and I didn't do it. Anyway, we're done for today. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Many candlesticks to Tristan for your 29th birthday on Friday. Please tweet him annoyingly and tell him what you think about him. Uh, we'll be back on Monday to talk about some other fun stuff in baseball, including the leaderboard piece that was published uh, on ESPN's MLB page uh, Wednesday and Thursday. I wrote a piece to go with it eventually. And uh, like basically it's projecting the metrics for a shortened season, which obviously we're doing as well, projecting which numbers are going to happen. And we'll get Tristan's thoughts on strategy. I wrote my piece up on strategy, but I'm sure Tristan could have done it a lot better. All right. Thanks so much to June Lee, Kyle Sapi, Tristan H. Cockcroft. I am Eric Carabell and have an awesome weekend.